During the Reformation, Martin Luther exchanged letters with a Roman Catholic monk named Erasmus. It's my understanding they'd been friends uh, prior to the Reformation. Uh, and when that happened, it caused a kind of a rift in their relationship. Luther, of course, was for the Reformation. Erasmus was against it. Uh, and, and so they sent letters to one another, each trying to convince the other that, that they were right. And in one of the letters, Martin Luther wrote to Erasmus. He, he wrote to him, and I mentioned this last week. He said to him, your thoughts of God are far too human. And I've thought about that statement quite a bit since I first heard it. And, and as I've been studying in Isaiah 40, uh, it has amplified these thoughts. And I can't help as I, I think about that idea that your thoughts of God are far too human. I, I can't help but wonder if much of what we see in our our American church culture would fit, would fit into that category. I mean, is it possible our thoughts of God are, are far too human? And, of course, if you're like me, your first thought is, no, of course not. But before we answer and we come to the conclusion of no, let's just think about some things that we see in our American church culture. Think about how many people in, in our American church culture believe God exists to help them in their time of need, but He really doesn't have any right to make any sort of inconvenient demands on their lives. Now, of course, God does is there to help us in our time of need. We're invited to cast our cares upon Him to, to find rest for our souls. But the other is there as well. And many in, in our church culture, people we know, people in our community, not, not people out there somewhere, people we know, people who might even call this church their home church. They don't see God as the, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Who, who has a right to make expectations of their lives. Who has a right to make demands and, and expect obedience to His will and submission to His will. But, but even more than that, they don't see Him as a God who, who not only expects obedience and submission to His will, but expects loving obedience and joyful Submission to His will. For, for many, God has no real right to make any demands. He should help when we get into trouble. But don't call me on anything I'm doing. Just help me and then leave me alone otherwise. Or how many people in our American church culture acts as though God exists to meet our needs. Instead of realizing we exist to serve God. I mean, think about how how many people profess faith in God. And yet how few of those people see him as the sovereign ruler of the universe to whom we must surrender our rights to everything, even our very lives. Old and New Testaments both clearly teach God demands not a portion of our lives, but all of our lives. Jesus says just to be his disciple, 
We must deny ourselves daily, take up our crosses and follow Him. And He says if we don't do those things, we're not worthy of Him. He says if we don't do those things, we will lose our souls in eternity. Romans 12 tells us we are to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice to God in response to all that He has done to us. That we are to fully surrender all of our lives to His will, to His wants in all things. These passages and many others demand us to be fully devoted to God. We are to give Him our all, all the time. Not not sometime, not Sundays, but every moment of every day is to be lived with Jesus as our greatest treasure and Him as our greatest priority. And yet what we see so often is Jesus is way down on the list of priorities. Not among lost people, among those who would say they are born again Christians. After studying this trend, one author I read concluded that many who claim to be Christian consider God less interesting than the television. They consider his commands less authoritative than their appetites for affluence and influence. They consider his judgments no more awe-inspiring than the evening news and his truth Less compelling than the advertiser's sweet fog of flattery and lies. Those who seem to live out these two mindsets seem to have the idea that God should be happy they're at least giving him something. After all, they're not worshipping Moloch. They're not bowing to Buddha. That they, they nominally acknowledge God. They, they probably go to church every so often. They might give a little bit financially. God should be happy they're not completely ignoring Him like so many other people do. And and yet, when we compare that mindset with what we see in God's Word, like Malachi 1 is a good example, God actually despises that mindset. He doesn't see it as flattering in any way at all. He, he finds it actually insulting. He finds it insulting because God knows who He is. God knows how great He is. God knows how awesome He is. And He knows He's worth more than some sort of token acknowledgement every so often. How do we keep ourselves from falling prey to this mindset. For the reality is, any of us could fall prey to it. Any of us could drift from a a level of full-throated devotion to Christ to seeing God as far too human. So how do we keep ourselves from doing that? Especially in a world which will tell us how normal and okay that is. Right? I mean... If any of us were to drift into that, there would be people we know, people who are themselves, call themselves disciples of Jesus, who would tell us that's okay. 
You don't want to get too carried away with with God and Jesus and all of that. You you've kind of got to keep it on a rational level. You can't get overboard with it. And they would confirm us and comfort us in lukewarmness. And they would comfort us and confirm us in complacency. So how do we keep from falling prey to the mindset when our flesh drifts that way? People will tell us that way is okay. And really everything in all the world is telling us to be that way. We have to to let what God's word says about who God is. Lift our eyes and lift our view of God. So that we're constantly being reminded how how great and glorious and majestic and awesome our God is. Because we can't just try harder. That doesn't work. Instead, we have to lift our eyes off of the, the junk here. And we have to raise them up to the great and the glorious God of the Bible and be all inspired by him. So that when people tell us things, this is what God is like, we can say like Martin Luther, no, no, your view of God is far too human. The God of the Bible is much greater than that. That's what we're going to try to do tonight. Open your Bible to Isaiah 40. We're going to start in verse 12. You're going to read through to verse 26. And when you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand on the reading of God's word. should be on page 547 in your pew Bible. So God is speaking. God starts speaking in verse 1, telling Isaiah what to write down and send to the people. So this is what God says about himself. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and measured the heavens with a span? And calculated the dust of the earth with a measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? Who has directed the spirit of the Lord or as his counselor has informed him? With whom did did he, did God consult and give him understanding? And who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him in the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn. Nor its animals enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. To whom will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with him? As for the idol, a craftsman casts it and a goldsmith plates it with gold. And a silversmith fashions chains of silver. He who is too impoverished for such an offering selects a tree that does not rot. And he seeks out for himself a skillful craftsman to prepare an idol that will not totter. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sets above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. 
who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to live in. It is he who reduces rulers to nothing and makes judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted. Scarcely have they been sown. Scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth. But he merely blows on them and they wither and the storm carries them away like stubble. To whom will you compare me that I would be his equal, says the Holy One. Raise your eyes on high. And see who has created the stars. The one who brings out their multitude by number. He calls them all by name. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one of them is missing. The title of the message is The Incomparable God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you tonight. We praise you for your grace and your goodness. We praise you for your love and your kindness. We praise you for your greatness and your majesty. Father, tonight, forgive us for the times our thoughts of you have been far too human. Forgive us for the times where we have underestimated your greatness and undervalued your glory. And have not given you the praise and the devotion you so richly deserve. But God, tonight we ask for help. Help us, Father, not to fall prey to that trap again. We ask you, Father, to help us get our eyes off of the things of this world and and on to you. That we would behold your glory and we would see your beauty and your majesty and your greatness and your power. And we would be all struck by that. And because of who you are and because of what you've done. We would joyfully surrender all of our lives to do whatever you would have us to do, no matter what that would be. That because of who you are and what you've done, we would give you loving obedience. We would know that no matter how hard the act of obedience is, it is it is a mercy and it is a grace and it is a pleasure to give that to you because of who you are. Because of what you have done. Fill me tonight with your Holy Spirit and give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Help me to speak your words and your ways for your glory and use it tonight. To sanctify us and strengthen us. To reveal your glory and your supremacy. To elevate our view of you. Renew our love and passion for you. And make us into a a holy people. Fully devoted to doing whatever you would have us to do. We ask this in the mighty name of Christ our Savior. Amen. may be seated. God's seeking to encourage his people. By reminding them how great he is. God knows if his people can get a solid grip on how great he truly is. That it will help them in the hard times of life. When they get discouraged. Now. God knows recognizing his greatness won't change their circumstances, but it will help them remember that God is greater than their circumstances. And and we all need this kind of encouragement in our life. We we need to be reminded about the greatness of our God because life is hard. We need to be reminded about the greatness of God because our minds drift from that. We need to constantly be reminded of the greatness of God. If there is anything we need more of, it is that. 
We could not be reminded of God's greatness and God's glory and God's majesty too often. But God gives several things and he leads down through this and he he's building his argument up to verses 25 and 26 when he asks them the question, to whom will you compare me that I would be his equal? I mean, who after after what I've described, I'm like, who are you going to point to anywhere on the earth or in the heavens and say God's like that or they're like God? And then if you're. Not fully sold on it. Raise your eyes and look at the heavens and realize that God created all of those things. That he brings out the stars by their number. He calls them all by name. And he does it because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. And not one of them is lost. He ensures it just because of who he is. So the main idea for us comes from verse 25. Who would we compare him to whom would be his equal? God is incomparably great and worthy of incomparable devotion. Since none can be compared to God, he is greater than all and greater than any. Then he is deserving of devotion greater than we would give to anyone or anything else in all of the world. This is the point God has been making throughout this passage. He demonstrates his incomparable greatness in five ways in this passage. We looked at two last week. We saw that God is incomparably powerful. He is the omnipotent God who can do anything he wants to do and no one can stop him. He is incomparably brilliant. He is the omniscient God who knows the end from the beginning and there is none like him. In that. And then tonight we look at three more ways God is greater than everything else. That God has no equal. First is God is greater than all nations. Now as we look at this passage. Keep in mind this was written for future Jewish exiles. Who had been deported from their homeland. And taken captive by the most powerful nation on the planet. The Babylonians who conquered Jerusalem were a major world power. By the time the Jews would be released from captivity, uh, the Babylonian Empire would have been conquered by another more powerful world empire. So God has Isaiah write down this message to remind them that he is greater than all the nations. And, And he does this. So that they will remember that whatever nation has them enslaved is not greater than the God who's promised to deliver them. That that whatever nation is is trying to woo them to, to incorporate into that nation and worship its gods. Don't do it because it's not worthy of their devotion. Only God is. And God explains and describes his greater. He's greater than all the nations in several ways. First, he says the nations of the world are insignificant. Compared to him. But look at what he says in verse 15. Behold the nations are like a drop from the bucket. Now we've all probably heard the phrase. Like a drop in the bucket. And it comes from this Bible verse. The phrase is used to describe something small and insignificant. So imagine you have a five gallon bucket of water or a five gallon bucket and you lower it down into a well and you fill it up with water. And as you're pulling it up, a a single solitary drop falls out. 
Well, you don't get all stressed about it. You don't worry about it. You don't think, oh, I've got to start all over again. I've lost all my water. You think that's no big deal. One drop is insignificant in comparison to how much water I've pulled up in the bucket. It's the picture here. If you were to take all the nations of the world and you took them not at their lowest point, but at their highest point, all the nations of the world in all of their glory, and you held all of them together and you compared them to God, they would be insignificant in comparison to God. Not, not just God is a little bit better than them, but they are as insignificant as a single drop of water falling from a giant bucket. They, they, are, they are just that insignificant in comparison to God. God illustrates this further by saying the nations of the earth are counted as small dust on the scales, a speck of dust on the scales. It's picture scales used to weigh something in the marketplace. And the, the, the price uh, was based upon how much it weighed. So you want the scales to be accurate, but you also don't want extra things on the scales to add to the weight. But in this case, it's a speck of dust on the scale. So imagine you're going to Walmart to buy apples and you go to put your apples on the scale. Before you do that, you don't pull out a wet nap and you don't wipe the scale down. So there's not a single speck of dust on it, do you? No, we don't. And if we saw somebody doing that, we would probably gripe about them in our minds because that seems a little weird, a little excessive because we know. A single speck of dust on the scales isn't going to affect how much we pay for the group of apples that we've just bought. That, that amount of dust is insignificant. In the same way, if you took all the nations of the world, not at their low point, but at their high point, all of their glory, and you weighed their value against the value of God, God would be worth more. But it's not just a little more. God, they are, God is so much greater than all the nations of the world in all of their glory that they are no more valuable in comparison to God than a speck of dust on scales is. The next part of verse 15 says, Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. Commentator Albert Barnes says the idea uh, of this part is of the verse. Is God compared all the islands of the world to fine dust that's blown away by the winds. And it, it to me it pictures the idea of blowing on a surface to get the dust off. And if that's the correct view and, and I believe it is. The idea is if you were to take all the nations of the earth. In all of their glory and compare them to God then they are as insignificant as the dust you blow off a book when you pick it up. They're just, they're just nothing in comparison to God. But God is greater than all the nations is also described in verse 16. The best sacrifices of the nations are inadequate for God. He says even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its animals enough for a burnt offering. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know the forests of Lebanon were, were valuable forests. Anytime a, a king, particularly like a king of Israel, 
wanted to build something significant and important. He, he wanted cedars of Lebanon. They were the best there were. The forests of Lebanon were filled with all manner of wild animals. And the picture being painted is, if you took all the forest of Lebanon and you used it to build an altar, and you took every animal out of those forests and you offered it to God, it would be an inadequate display of God's greatness. He would be worth even more still. If we were to search all the nations of the world over all of the earth to find any sacrifice that would be adequate and be good enough to say this is God is worth this. This is exactly what God is worth. We would search forever and we would find nothing. Nothing on the earth could be given to God and adequately demonstrate his greatness. The best the world can offer to God to display his greatness is flawed and failing and insufficient. In verse 17, he continues this thought. The nations of the world are are nothing, are worthless, are meaningless before God. All the nations are nothing before him. They regard it as less than nothing and meaningless. It's really driving the point he's been making home here. This is the idea of relative importance. How important are all the nations right now? Again, notice it's all the nations. It's not a nation. Pick the worst nation you don't like. And it's that one. It's not that. It's not Another particular nation, maybe a really good nation. It's not that. It's it's all the nations. If you take all the nations of the world in all of their glory, at the height of their empires, at the height of their prosperity, at the height of their goodness. And then you compare them to God. How important are they in comparison to God? How valuable are they in comparison to God? How significant are they in comparison to God? The answer is they are nothing. They are less than nothing. They are meaningless. Great and powerful nations have come. And great and powerful nations have fallen. And God is still here. And great and powerful nations rise and exist now. And great and powerful nations will one day fall. And God will still exist God is not dependent upon a nation. God is not dependent upon all the nations. God is greater than all of them combined. And if we are going to take God seriously, then we must view him as being incomparably worthy. He is worth more than all the nations of the world. And he is worthy of incomparable devotion. We should give God greater devotion than we would give all the nations of the world. God is worth more and greater devotion than all. God is not only greater than all the nations, God is greater than all idols. The land where Israel would be taken was a land filled with idolatry. The idols would range from large idols and temples to small idols and personal shrines. The nation 
who would conquer the Babylonians would bring in their own gods and their own idols. And everything that a nation accomplished at this time in the world was seen as being done by their God. It would be attributed to the greatness of God when two nations went to war. The nation that won was the nation that considered to have had the stronger, the better God. So Israel would be conquered and they would be captured and they would be in a land of idolatry. But they needed to know their God had not been defeated. Their God was the one true God. Their God was greater than all of the man-made idols in the land in which they were going. Verse 18, God asked again the question, who would you liken to God or with what likeness? And with what likeness he's talking about an idol. And as he goes through it, the end of it all is that all idols are inferior to God. The idols of the prosperous are inferior to God. Verse 19. As for the craftsman, or as for the idol, a craftsman casts it. A goldsmith plates it with gold and a silversmith fashions chains of silver. Now one of the things that, the, of course, one of the ways you honored your God was by building or making it, it kind of the, the most expensive idol you could make. The most lavish thing you could do. And it demonstrated the value and the worthiness of your God. So someone that was rich would have a, a really, even for their personal God, would have a really ornate, kind of a glorious looking picture. Idol statue of their God. Today I, I googled gold covered idols to get an idea of maybe what these would look like. Most of the idols we saw in India weren't like Massively lavish. We saw in one place some that were in a jewelry store we went into. But most were just pictures and statues. But not gold covered idols. So as I, I looked at them. I imagine that they would have been impressive looking. One um, cost $23,000. For a, a statue of Ganesh. A, an, a Hindu god. The rest of the expensive ones range from one to three thousand dollars. That's a significant investment. But as expensive as these idols were, as ornate as they were, according to verse 19, they they are all inferior to God. The greatest craftsman in the world could be given an unlimited amount of gold and silver and precious jewels, an unlimited amount of time and an unlimited budget. And while he could fashion something that would certainly be beautiful to behold, it would still be inferior to God. But it's not just the, the idols of the rich that are inferior, but the idols of the poor are inferior to God too. But he who is too impoverished for such an offering... Selects a tree that does not rot. He seeks out for himself a skillful craftsman to prepare an idol that will not totter. Only the, it wasn't just the rich who had idols, the poor had idols as well. Their idols wouldn't have been as elaborate as the idols of the prosperous, but they would be just as devoted to their idols. And they would do their very best to make it as elaborate and ornate as they possibly could. But even the sacrifice that they would make in this, having something made that was to the best that they could afford, 
it would still only be an idol that that had to be made by a man and it had to be set up so that it would not totter, it would not fall down, it had to be propped up. It was still inferior to God. That would be easy for us to think, well, that's clearly that would never apply to us. I mean, I don't have an idol. I don't have a statue of Ganesh or Shiva or anything else. But one of the things we learn in God's word is that an idol doesn't have to be a carved image. An idol can be anything that we give greater importance to in our life than we give to God. Anything we give greater devotion to than we give devotion to God, that has become an idol in our life. Idolatry is the one sin God has always judged more harshly. And it sadly is one of the sins his people have been most susceptible to fall for. In our day in America, we don't, again, we likely don't have golden idols that we bow before. But that doesn't mean we can't have and we don't have idols. Doesn't mean there's not something in our life we're giving greater preeminence to and greater devotion to than we're giving to Jesus, to, to God. It could be a house, it could be a car. Could be a job, could be a hobby, could be a position, it could be money, it could be sports, it could be to family, our spouse or our children, it could be to comfort, it could be to the television, it could be to sexual pleasure, it could be to possessions, it could be to food, it could be to power, it really, it can be anything. That's part of what makes idolatry so dangerous is it can be anything. And a part of what makes it so dangerous is that it doesn't have to be something evil. None of the things I mentioned on that list are inherently evil. In fact, most of them are good things. Gifts from a good God that have been bestowed upon us. Instead of a list of evil things, it's a list of good things that become evil when we make them ultimate things. When we allow these good things to become the primary object of our devotion, the thing we are most focused on, the thing we, we live for and care about the most, more than we care about God, more than we live for God, we take a good thing and we make it an evil thing by turning it into an idol in our lives. One of the greatest fights we will ever have in our spiritual life is the fight of keeping good things from becoming ultimate things. And we all have any number of good things in our lives. And at any given moment, the temptation to make this good thing an ultimate thing could flare up. And we'll have to fight and make a decision in that moment. And what's even more dangerous, I believe, is how subtly it can happen. I mean, if something like if there was a thought in our head that said, Love this more than you love God. We would know, wow, that's a that's a devilish temptation. That's not right. But it doesn't happen like that. Instead, it's a a subtle slip. I mean, how many of us have let things 
interfere with our relationship with Jesus. And things doesn't have to be a thing. It could be a person. It could be any number. I'm just using things. And we do it just for a time. My life is really busy right now, so I'm going to let my devotion to Jesus go back burner. And I'm going to put this in that spot. Just for a time, though. I'm not abandoning Jesus. I'm not turning away from Him. I'm not tossing Him by the wayside. I'm just going for the time being, just for the this moment. This has to be first. It has to be more important than my relationship with Christ. And the danger with that is what we say is, well, this is just for a limited time. But how how hard is it then to get Jesus back into that spot where he belongs? The reason it's hard is because life comes fast. And so for a time, this thing, it's first. And we we get by the time. Whatever we need. Maybe we're in school and we've got to put it first. Or maybe it's got to get a promotion in a job. Or or maybe a relationship or trying to get solidified. Whatever it is. And we get that solidified. We get it where we want it to be. But life doesn't just stay right there. And we can go, okay, I'll just put Jesus back up here. Boom, we're moving. No harm, no foul. So we think, okay, I need to get Jesus back up there. Now there's something else. There's a, a new goal. The, the end zone has moved a little bit. Now, oh, that, oh, yeah, 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 I do. I need, okay, so, so I was going to do this now, but I'm going to wait now and I'm going to, I've got to pursue this right now. And once I get that, then I'm going to. And it just happens one thing after another. Because again, the world, the flesh and the devil, they don't want us to have Jesus first in our life. The world, the flesh, and the devil want us to make good things ultimate things. And so there's always going to be a temptation to take something good that we have in our life and make it the ultimate thing and keep Jesus on the back burner. And so the limited time frame that we think is going to be never turns out to be the limited time frame. It turns out to be this thing and then this thing and then this thing. But the thing is, Jesus is always falling further and further and further back. I mean, not that Jesus is going to be okay with being second place in our life. He's not. He knows who He is and He knows what He's done. He knows how worthy He is. But He doesn't stay second place. Because we pursue this first, Jesus second. Well, then we take this thing and make it first. This, is still, this becomes second. Jesus becomes third. And every new thing we add just gets placed further and further in front of Jesus until He's so far back. That he's not any priority in our lives any longer. And this is true. And, and the reality is, well, the point that the passage is making is Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater than whatever idol the world could form at us if we're wealthy and can make something magnificent. And Jesus is greater if we're impoverished and we make something smaller. First in our lives. We don't have to be rich to be an idol, to have an idol. Anybody can have an idol. One great preacher of times gone by has said that the human heart is an idol factory. It is always seeking to elevate something over Jesus. And we have to be aware of that. So that we do not allow something good to become ultimate 
and then become an idol. There is no idol. The idol of the prosperous or the idol of the poor that can compare to God. If we're going to take God seriously, we must view him as being incomparably worthy. He's greater than whatever idol we're currently being tempted to elevate in front of him at the moment. He's greater than that. He's better than that. He's more important than that. I was reading my Bible reading today in Philippians 3, the Apostle Paul. I've lost all things and count them but dung that I, I may have Christ. Paul knew that. Jesus was greater. Jesus was better than anything that wasn't Jesus. And if Jesus is greater than all of these other things, then, then we must give him a greater devotion. Our devotion to the good things of life cannot compare to our devotion to the great thing of life, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And when it does, when there's a competition, when it's equal or better, that good thing has become an idol, no matter what that good thing is. If we're going to take God seriously, we must view Him as incomparably worthy and we must give Him an incomparable devotion. God is greater than all nations. God is greater than all idols. And then finally, God is greater than all humanity. The last thing we see is God is greater than than all humanity. He asks the questions in verse 21. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the world? Essentially, what God is saying is, don't you know who I am? I am the Lord, the creator of all there is. I am greater than anything you know about. It says that, verse 22, that God sets above the circle of the earth. That is a a, a picture of rulership. God is reminding them and us. He is the king over all kings, the Lord over all lords, the one who rules Over all the earth. He rules over the earth not because he's been elected. He rules over all the earth because he is the great God of heaven. He is the one true God. The creator and sustainer of all things. And in comparison to God. All the inhabitants of the earth are like grasshoppers. Humans are like insects in comparison to God. Now. This isn't a demeaning thing. The image here isn't that God doesn't care about people. If God did not care about people, there wouldn't be a gospel message about a Savior who came and died on the cross for our sins and rose again. God's care for humanity is without question, without doubt, far greater than our care for God. But it's a, it is again a question of comparison. All people, if you took all of humanity combined at their best, compared them to God, God is still so much greater that we're like insects to him. Albert Barnes says, what a striking illustration of the insignificance of man as he is viewed from the heavens. What an impressive description of the the nothingness of Of his humans mighty plans. 
and the vanity of his mightiest works. You know, as people, one of our temptations is to think that we're ultimate. We're the center. We're the point and the purpose of it all. But we're not. God is. God is ultimate. God is central. God is the point and the purpose of it all. We cannot compare with him. Humans are are powerless before him. So God stretches out the heavens like a curtain. He spreads them out like a tent to live in. God controls nature and he controls the world and he controls what's going on. But not only does he do that, he reduces rulers to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth meaningless. So the mighty, the powerful, the rich, the the, the weighty of our world, in comparison to God, they're they're nothing. They may rule for a time, they may have power for a time, but they become nothing and it's God who does it. God reduces them to nothing. God makes them meaningless. And part of what this is saying is God has power over life and death. God isn't just sitting up in heaven and he has no no control. He can control life and death and the rise of nations, the fall of nations. And in comparison to God, these powerful people are scarcely planted, scarcely sown, scarcely. They begin to take root and he he blows on them and they wither and the storm carries them away like stubble. It's like no matter how long they ruled, they they just got started in comparison to an eternal God. And then when God determines their time is up, he overthrows them. But But it's not difficult. God doesn't fight against the rulers of this world. Right. The, the Psalm two, the the rulers of the world, they, they plot and they scheme against God and his Christ. How does God respond? He laughs at them. He laughs at them in derision because of how futile and foolish it is to think that they could conquer God and they could stop his plans. And so when God determines that the nation needs to fall, the leader needs to be taken down, he doesn't fight against them. He just goes, and it's done. God is greater than than all humanity. If we're going to take God seriously, then we have to view him as being incomparably worthy. He's worth more than than all the peoples of the world. And if it comes down to to losing our relationship with God or or losing a relationship with the people of the world, who do we choose? We choose God every time because he's greater and worthier than they are. If it comes down between affirming someone in a sin because we don't want to hurt their heart or because staying faithful to God and his word, what do we choose? We choose God because he's greater and worthier than they are. In the end, we choose the point of all that God is saying is that we choose him over everything else. This is how we give him incomparable devotion. The choice is between loyalty to a nation or loyalty to our God. We choose our God every time. 
The choice is between an idol of our heart that we build or loyalty to our God. We choose our God every time. The choice is between loyalty to a person, a family, anything, any human on earth for any reason or loyalty to our God. We choose our God every time. Because no nation can be compared to him. No idol is his equal. And people are like insects in comparison to him. Living in this world, it is easy for us to let the greatness of God slip for our minds. That's why it's good for us at times to raise our eyes on high, as it says in verse 26. To look to the great God who created and sustains all things. And as we remember the greatness of God. It just naturally flows that we understand the devotion he's worthy of. If God is really all that this passage right here, just this passage says he is. Then he is greater than anything else that that we could fathom. As such, he is also worthy of greater devotion than anything else we can think of. God is incomparably great and incomparably worthy of our devotion. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you tonight. You're great and awesome. Help us to remember that. Help us to remember how worthy and majestic and awesome you you truly are. And let our lives reflect it. Lord, it's easy to say you're great. It's easy to say you're awesome. But to have a life that shows it is a whole different matter. Father, where we have idols erected in our hearts, reveal them to us. Show them. Show us how how spiritually deadly those things are. Father, they're not okay. Even if they're, we would think they're good things, the moment they become an ultimate thing, they become an evil thing. And let us rearrange life. So Christ is first. Christ is all. And Lord, let us have the attitude of the Apostle Paul that we would say everything in this life, it is just dumb in comparison to Christ, to you. And that to lose anything but to, to keep you, it's the best deal we could ever make, no matter what we lose. Make us those people we ask in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.